we knew that a 558 or, or construction defect lawsuit was going to happen as soon as turnover happened from the developer control to the association. So what we tried to do was draft into the contract with the contractor uh, protections in that in that, that those circumstances, right? You know, you want to try to address those issues before you do a turnover so that when you turn over, you're not complaining about a structural issue, you're complaining about whether or not a light switch was in the right location, which is an easy fix, right? That, that's, those are the distinctions you try to make. Um, on top of that, you try to have a good contractor and a, and a reputable contractor that's gonna stand by their product and make sure that warranties are there and indemnification provisions are in the contract to protect you uh, if you're a developer in that aspect as well. Welcome to another episode of the Real Estate Law Podcast. Jason Muth here with straightforward short-term rentals and pride away stays. And we have two attorneys once again on the podcast. We are living up to our law name, Rory. First, we'll introduce Rory Gill, who's attorney right here in New England. Welcome, Rory. Great. And we get to have a different legal perspective on here today. I mean, it's a returning champion from Haber Law, but we are going to be discussing a little bit of construction and real estate law and how it differs from what we're used to here in the Northeast um, and how it's working for them down in Miami, Florida. Yeah. It's always nice to get different perspectives, especially when you know here there's no leaves on the trees. There's snow on the ground in New Hampshire where I'm recording this. Rory's at our studios in Newburyport. Uh, we're once again going to the, the, the sunny skies and beautiful palm trees of South Florida and Haverlaw in Miami. I know that, Alex, you you live this every single day, um, and we look forward to going to warm climates, and you know this is the world that you live in. But let's introduce our guests. We're going to talk about construction law today, some condo law, and learn about some of the unique uh, challenges that buyers and builders and everyone has to face um, you know, when they're putting some real estate projects together. So we should introduce Alex Leone from Haber Law. Welcome, Alex. Thank you, guys. Thank you, Rory. Thank you, Jason, for having me. Yes, we really appreciate it. Um, you know, once again, I'm outnumbered by the attorneys here, the real estate attorneys here. And, you know, that's when I kind of take a step back in these conversations because you guys probably have a lot more intelligent things to talk about. But, you know, we've talked about condo law on this in the past and condos around the country are, you know, all walks of life, you know, in, in South Florida, you guys have, you know, lots of taller aging properties. You have lots of taller, newer buildings. We certainly have that in the Northeast, but a lot of our associations are smaller in nature, you know, three, six, 12 unit condo associations. Uh, but there are some similarities between the two. Alex, tell us a little bit about your background and, you know, how you got started working in the real estate, uh, real estate law world. Sure. Sure. Uh, so I started practicing law uh, a little bit over 10 years ago, um, working in in the litigation space. Uh, about seven years ago, I, I transitioned over to construction law specifically. I was doing mostly construction defect litigation. Um, and then uh, about two years after that, I started do representing developers almost exclusively for, for about five or six years. And then I, I, I've now come back around and started representing associations and developers and contractors and designers uh, in a more transactional uh, aspect of my practice, but the the litigation aspect helped uh, educate my transactional practice and vice versa. So so it's uh, it allows me to be in a unique position where I've represented kind of everybody on the side of the deal uh, and and fought about a lot of these deals and these issues in in court. So it allows me to give clients a unique perspective and and an efficient effective perspective. I think. 
So if, you know, the bulk of your clients are professionals in this space um, in one capacity or another, how do you go out and, you know, build a reputation and build a client base of professionals? So what I try to do is get involved with professional organizations, right? So like down here, uh, the Latin Builders Association is a great organization that connects uh, builders and, and developers and as well as representatives for condo associations, et cetera. Uh, so I, wor I work with them. Um, next year, I'll be involved in the U Urban Land Institute's Leadership Academy. Uh, so I'll be, be working with industry professionals across all aspects of, of the uh, real estate space and, and tackling uh, unique challenges that are presented to the Urban Land Institute down here in South Florida so that we can try to come up with some creative solutions. So uh, working with industry professionals, maintaining a good relationship with those people because you never know when they're going to be your colleague or your ally as opposed to your adversary. So uh, that that's how I do it. What do you miss about the litigation? I miss the intensity and the excitement of going to court and trial uh, and getting ready to present an argument. I don't miss the long hours or the adversarial nature uh, where it becomes contentious. But that being said, just because I don't do it anymore doesn't mean I know I don't know what's going on in the, in the litigation space. I, I, a lot of my colleagues here at Haver Law, you know, handling those kinds of cases regularly. So a lot of times they'll ask me to come in and, and analyze a contract or give my perspective on a particular argument. So I'm still in it, but just not at the front line, so to speak. Yeah. It's probably experience you could bring to some of the clients that you're working with in a less adversarial nature uh, who are just building projects. Um, you know, if you were to engage a client from the start, like what are some of the initial things that a builder for a condo development, what are some questions that you might ask them or some initial legal things that they might have to consider when they're about to break ground? Do you mean a developer or do you mean a contractor? Because the perspectives for each of them are different. Mm -hmm. um, so for I'll, I'll answer both, I guess. So if I'm representing a developer client who's looking to develop here in South Florida, I usually ask them uh, who's working on your land use your land use side because we don't have that that here at Haver Law. You know who's doing your entitlements, who's doing your your um, your approvals because that's that's vital right before we even get to the actual construction contract. And my next question is who's doing your design? Uh, is your architect? You know where are they at with their construction documents? So I know kind of timing as to when we can engage a contractor. Uh, and then ultimately your budget, you know, what time, what kind of projects you're building, where, et cetera, that that's really the, the information I need to know in order to uh, provide proper advice. Right. Um, and, and, and obviously the, the asset class is important, right? If it's a condominium versus a commercial rental um, it's, it's completely different considerations. If it's an affordable housing development, there's complete, completely different legal uh, implications there. Um, so that, that's what I do when I talk to a developer client. When I talk to a contractor, I ask somewhat of the similar questions, but besides the entitlement aspect and the approval aspect, I ask kind of what, what the asset class is, who you're working with, who your subs are, where are the design documents so that we know kind of the timing of it. And then ultimately, what are the developer requirements, right? Is there a lender involved, which that's a question for both the developer and for the, for the builder, because sometimes they're self-financed, sometimes they, they go out and get financing. So the, all of those those questions are are similar across across both of the clients, but uh, with a, a different perspective, right? Because from a construction from a builder perspective, uh, I'm not so concerned about the entitlement aspect. But from a developer perspective, I need to know kind of is this project uh, is this project about to break ground, or is it like a year and a half or two years out from from getting the approvals? Mm -hmm. I think a lot of people who might be listening to this are aspirational with their real estate investing, right? You know, a lot of people might want to flip homes or develop some larger projects. Um, talk about some of the things that a client, what makes a good client? 
like where a client will approach you saying, Hey, listen, like we're looking Alex for you to do X for us, or we have this project that we're thinking about as someone that might want to develop real estate. What can one do to be better prepared to have some of those initial conversations with you? Sure. So from a development perspective, a good client is a, is a sophisticated client, right? Somebody that knows all aspects of their deal, knows where their money's coming from, knows where their budget is, knows what their timing is. The last thing you need when, when I'm talking to clients is they don't know the answer to a, a very vital question with regards to their project, right? And, and that doesn't mean that I can't represent them. Obviously, like I can help guide them and help, you know, assist them in, in finding that answer or connecting them with the right people that can give them that answer. That's really what I'm looking for from a developer perspective. Somebody that knows what they're doing, um, at least at some level. And if they want to scale up, that's certainly something I can help them with. But ultimately, uh, the developers the developers come down here a lot uh, to South Florida in particular, and they think that it's going to be the same as their home uh, town, where they're coming from the Northeast or New York or, or Boston or anywhere else, right? They, they think that it's the same down here, and that's that's not the case. And sometimes, as long as they're coming with, with uh, information and an open mind to be advised, then that's usually the way the way that clients work best. Uh, now, when it comes to builders, what I try to tell my clients is, look, my my goal is to advise on the risks on a particular deal. My goal is to advise you where the pitfalls are. But but ultimately, I'm trying to stay out of the way of your business. Like you have to make a business decision. You have to make a decision on your end whether you want to take on that particular project, whether what you want to expose yourself on the bond capacity that you have, or the insurance insurance you're carrying, et cetera. And that's ultimately your decision, but I try to advise you whether or not I think it's a smart decision or or uh, inadvisable decision. That's that's my role as a counselor uh, at the end of the day. I want to ask about some of those misperceptions of people coming in from out of the market. I know even here in the Northeast, one state to another, there are a lot of differences. And if you're used to to one jurisdiction, you can get completely flustered and thrown off in the other with bad assumptions. What are some of the misperceptions that the out of region developers have when they come to you? Well, it's really just a matter of relationships, right? If you come down here and you have no relationships in government or in the design space or the builder space or the or the um, entitlement space, it's it's very difficult to get things moving, right? Because ultimately, uh, this you know South Florida in particular is is ripe for development. There's a lot of capital coming down here, but but that's really the main issue, right? Is having the the relationships with people, the connections to politicians or or, or government approval authorities, et cetera. To be able to pass push along your project as needed, um, and certainly you know Florida is trying to become better about that, and and with with the advent of the Live Local Act and and um, a couple of other legislations that have come down here, but ultimately that that's really the main thing. Having a local council for an out of state developer is vital, even if you have local, even if you have a development council or a construction council that you work with pretty regularly. Just having somebody with boots on the ground that knows the players, right? That's that's the the main difference. I've seen time and time again that developers are, are frustrated uh, when they come down here because they think that it's going to work the same way as when they have back at home. And that that's just not the case. And, and ultimately, when it comes to budget analysis in particular, um, knowing the local players, know, knowing the suppliers, the, the builders, the contractors that are going to be bidding on your project, you, you get a better understanding of pricing. But uh, but that obviously depends on the size of the developer, too, because if you're if you're the you know bigger developers that are doing, you know, multi in the hundreds of millions of dollars, that's a little different than, than doing a, a one or two or $3 million project. So it, it really just depends on the client and depends on the circumstances, but that's, that's where I would focus my attention on. Corey, it's uh in Florida, it's Florida, right? It's a large state, right? Miami's, mm -hmm. you know, 
very South Florida. Obviously, the jurisdictions are very different throughout the state as well. But, you know, Rory, you're in a situation where we in Newburyport can drive 30 minutes and have been through two different states, three different states, right? Maine, New Hampshire, and Massachusetts. And, you know, even though it's within, you know, a quick drive, uh, the jurisdictions are very different in situations like that. And there's a lot of situations across the country where, you know, New York, New Jersey, Connecticut, I mean, you could be in those three states within an hour. You know, there's a lot of places that people, you know, states border one another, people are operating across those borders, and the laws are very different there, wouldn't you say? More than that, it's within – you have hundreds of different towns in that same radius that each are going to have very different personalities and regulations. When it comes to zoning in particular, but any kind of approval that relates to, to land use and development, you have kind of your objective criteria. You know, These are the things that you need to have to be able to build as of right. But we know that that's not where the conversation really ends. There are a lot of discretionary approvals that are given by um, different local authorities and boards. And that's why even here, you want the council that is well known and understands that particular locality, even if that town only has 5,000 people in it, you want to engage somebody who's familiar with that town, familiar with those people on those approval boards, um, and really understands the culture there. And as I said, there are hundreds of different ones here. So I think that's what Alex is um, discussing a little bit there with the the different the need to have local counsel that understands not only the objective criteria that are laid out in the regulations, but the relationships and the people that are going to be making the decisions. Yeah, that's exactly what I was trying to get at, right? because even in Florida in particular, and I keep on saying South Florida, because now with the influx of capital here, West Palm Beach, or Palm Beach County, Broward County, and Miami-Dade County, that tri-county area has kind of been considered as one and the same, right? South Florida is all you know booming right now. But if you go just a little bit north to Orlando or just a little bit west to Tampa, those are two other completely different jurisdictions that you know your relationships in South Florida have really nothing to do with those counties in Tampa and Orlando. So you have to have local counsel that kind of allows you to bridge the gap and, and have relationships with people all over the state. That's unique. Obviously, that's not not common. Most practicing attorneys, whether you're in real estate or construction or any any real practice, you're not really practicing in Florida outside of a, a few jurisdictions. So um, being able to have that uh, far-reaching Rolodex, uh, so to speak, and I know I'm, I'm dating myself with with that reference, but uh, you know having that Rolodex where you have relationships with people and, and and professionals across the state is is vital for any kind of development, especially depending on the market you want to build in, obviously. I think we could still use Rolodex, right? I mean, <laughs> that term is fine. I think people do get it, but that might be one of those terms that, you know, 20-somethings that are coming up in the world are like, you're talking about a Rolodex. Like, what is a Rolodex? Uh, yeah. I mean, as yeah. I, you know, you save a document and if you're using Microsoft Word, which I mostly use Google Docs these days, but Microsoft Word still has that little like disk, that floppy disk <laughs> as the way to save it. And there's probably yeah. some people that are saying, what is that icon? That doesn't mean anything to me. When I was growing up, Rolodexes were pretty common. So now I, I still use that phrase, but it's I guess it's the contacts now in your phone. That's that's the best way to do it. That's the way to reference it. Uh, and, and Jason, <laughs> you, you mentioned something before that I wanted to touch on. Besides developers and, and builders, obviously, we have a, 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 law, a large list of condo clients and association clients that we have to treat almost the same, right? Like we have they they have remediation projects that that are complex and and are you know high budget items. I have one client in particular that is doing a thirty three million dollar construction remediation project just because of the size of the condominium and the complexity of the project. And and as a result of that, you know a thirty three million dollar project is big and sophisticated for anybody. 
uh, for any developer across the country, much less a condo association of volunteers and and unit and homeowners. Those kinds of deals, and I'm seeing them more and more, especially after the unfortunate incident of Champlain Towers. You know, the laws changed, and and now associations are required to do these remediation projects. And as a result, that some of these associations, unfortunately, have left that remediation process for a long time. So it's created more and more dollars that need to get funded into those projects. So when you have a condo association is doing a you know project that's in the seven or eight figures, um, you have to treat them as from an attorney's perspective and from a, a, a budgeting perspective, you have to treat those associations as if they are sophisticated developers and you have to counsel them as such because yeah. that kind of project requires construction financing, requires a project manager, requires design designers, several designers, requires several contractors and subcontractors and managing of that paperwork is vital uh, for, for the success, right? Because at the end of the day, every single developer, whether you're an association doing a remediation project or a developer or doing a, a ground up construction, they want projects done on time and on budget. And how do you do that? You make sure that the proper paperwork is done on the front end and you have established certain relationships. And, and that's what my role is here at the firm, right? I, I do, I, I work on the, all the construction contracts that come through here, whether it's for a developer or builder or or for a, uh, a condo association. And I try to provide that, that um, value in, in drafting the contract. So it, it is a both a sword and a shield and you use it as, as you need to, right? Depending on the circumstances because projects inevitably have problems and you have to be ready to, to deal with them in an efficient and effective way. Earlier, Jason asked you what makes a great client, and you mentioned a client that know their figures, know their information that are sophisticated. You sense a tension here with those condo associations where the, the condo boards may not have that same level of sophistication that a developer client has. How do you go about educating those clients and really advocating on their behalf when they are not necessarily development-minded in the first place? That's a great question, Rory, and, and I deal with this almost daily. Um, Condo boards are, are, as you know, uh, in your in your practice, they're made up of volunteers, right? And in your circumstance, with with smaller units, of three, four, or five units, that's that's easier, right? Because you have like two or three people that know your neighbors. Um, but when you have a two hundred or three hundred unit condominium, a lot of times these boards are are become very contentious, and how they elect they're elected or becomes contentious, and they're trying to do their best for the association most of the time, um, but not not always, right? And and there's always infighting and problems that happen. My role as counsel is always to come in and really just kind of explain to them um, as if I were explaining it to someone who is unsophisticated, because although some of these luxury condominiums down here have people on the board that are experienced in construction or in development, not always. So I have to come in and explain, okay, well, that's why this this provision in the contract matters. That's why it's important. I've, I've used my litigation experience from before I was a transactional attorney to be able to explain that and say, okay, well, I've litigated this particular issue and this is how it works out. So having to explain it, that's really the, the difference in my practice when I'm representing a developer versus a, a condo association. It's that when I explain to them, uh, to a developer, for example, why I, I care so much about a particular insurance or a particular indemnification provision, they understand it, right? They, they, they get it. They, they've been through the through the, the, the battle, so to speak. Whereas a condo association, this is the most complex project most of the time that they've ever dealt with in their lives. Think about in your personal lives, how often do you do a large remediation of your home, for example? That that, that doesn't happen for most people. 
So when, when I come in and I explain to a condo association or a board, I'm explaining from a position of trying to make it as simple as possible, but also under letting them know, okay, well, these are the risks involved. These are the pros and cons of this particular provision and, and why it works and why it doesn't work. So to answer to, you know, you address the, the what makes a good client, um, condo boards, when they're, they're, when they are good condo board clients, it's when they rely upon my information, right? They understand that they are not an expert in the field. They're an expert in their respective personal lives, but not in this life. So the, being able to rely upon consultants, rely upon attorneys, rely upon project managers, et cetera, that those are the good, good condo boards because they, at the end of the day, that's what protects them. When they're making a decision based upon advice and counsel, they're, they're protected uh, from liability as a condo board. When you're buying a condo, like in a city like Boston, you don't think about these things. You're looking at the unit, right? You're right. maybe you're kicking the tires on some of the books for the association, but you know what sells you is the sexiness of the kitchen and the layout and the footprint and all that kind of thing. All the amenities, I can think of, of two situ all the amenities. Absolutely, I can think of two situations. One, I just bumped into a friend this past weekend whose condo building burned down, thirty unit building. All right. It's taken over a year, not to the ground, but like fire damage to the point that everyone had to move out. And it's been, sure. you know, 14, 15 months. And it just sounds like a bit of a nightmare. And I saw some other friends at a wedding a couple a couple weeks ago. And they were asking me questions because for some reason, people always think that I'm the attorney. Uh, I'm like, no, 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 Rory's the attorney. Remember, like, you know, I'm just on, on the podcast as well. You know, so ask them these questions, but I could relay them over to Rory. And uh, But these friends were having some issues with the developer that built their building. And they realized that there was some problems with the insulation or sound attenuation or plumbing between the units. And, you know, the, the developers kind of washed his hands of it at this point, And now it's on the association. And some of them are having a hard time reselling their units as a result of something that I'm probably not articulating correctly. Mm -hmm. However, in both those situations, it reminds me how important it is to really dig into the stability of the condo association itself and to work with the board and to understand that you're not just buying a beautiful unit in a great building in an awesome city, whatever those you know three variables are. Mm -hmm. You're buying your way into this into basically a business. A volunteer right. business of people who actually have to figure out a way to get along and go forward if really bad things happen. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so buying a condo down here is, and when I say down here for your listeners of South Florida, it's a unique, unique investment, right? Because you have to consider, especially now, considering the the the, the um, aging condominium problem that we have down in down here in Florida, in particular in South Florida, especially. Um, you have to consider not only the unit that you're buying, but also the books that the condo association is keeping, the accounting, where they are with assessments, uh, so that you understand how how funded the, the association is for maintenance perspectives, um, and as well as you also have to think about, well, if it's a newer condominium, who built it, right? Who's the developer? Who's the contractor? And if you have a good understanding of, of you know, if it's a reputable you know, person behind that or, or company behind that, then you can kind of have some peace of mind when it comes to buying a unit. Uh, but but um, but Jason, you brought up an example of of a um, what, what we call down here a construction defect, right? Like there's an is insulation issue or something that that should have been addressed by the developer. That happens all the time. Every single uh, multifamily development down here uh, has um, a, a litigation usually attached to it as soon as it gets turned over from developer control to to association control. And, and our, our my colleagues here at the office do that almost exclusively, right? Our construction defect department uh, specializes in that kind of what we call 558 disputes because it's chapter 558 in Florida law, but it's a, it's a construction defect dispute. The developer builds a building, 
and then turns it over to association control. And then the association is responsible to hire an engineer to investigate, to see you know, if the project that they were promised is, is delivered, right? And if there's any defects, you have to litigate about that. When it's a reputable developer with a good builder uh, in a luxury market, sometimes it's it's not a, not very much, right? It's not it's not a big ticket item, and there's sometimes that it becomes a very very big problem. Uh, I know from my past life uh, and, and when I was a litigator, uh, there was a project that was built in in Palm Beach County. The developer built it in a way where, and not to get too technical, but essentially they they um, the way they built it, water was in, infiltrating behind the stucco underneath the windows and damaging the, the the wood structure underneath the stucco, where if you're buying it from the outside, you would never see that damage because it's behind stucco. You wouldn't see it. But as soon as you open the stucco, it was wooded, rotted wood underneath. And these are you know people's homes at the end of the day. And, and we're talking about a 30-something million dollar construction defect case um, that we ended up settling for for a good amount of money for for the client um on the third day of jury selection um but yeah that that those kinds of cases happen a lot more frequent than than people report about in, in the news um but that's something that any buyer has to be concerned about when you're coming down here to South Florida and Florida in general you have to do your research not only not only about the unit that you're buying but also the building itself right what the funding as well as what the status is of any potential construction defects and what complaints the unit owners are having. And if it's an older condominium in particular, what is the assessment that's on the horizon? If there's a certificate, a 30-year, 40-year, 50-year certification coming up, what is the you know, rough order of magnitude of those remediations so that you understand kind of what you're buying into? Because for that client I mentioned to you earlier that was doing that $33 million construction remediation project, I can only imagine how difficult it must be for a unit owner to come in and have bought it a, a unit, let's say a year and a half ago, or just before Champlain Towers and the law changes in Tallahassee. And now you're faced with an assessment in the six figure range. and You had no idea how you were, were buying that, buying into that. And it's, it's an unfortunate, tough situation, but you know, we, we obviously are in a position to be able to counsel not only buyers, but sellers and, and condos and, and developers and, and, and the like in between. Let's flip the perspective on that around a little bit. If these suits are so common as to almost be automatic, what does a developer do to prepare for this um, and to anticipate the inbound lawsuits against them after they turn over the property? Before I joined Haber Law, I, I worked for a firm that almost exclusively represented developers in my practice. So we we thought about that and talked about that pretty regularly. We we knew that a 558 or, or construction defect lawsuit was going to happen as soon as turnover happened from the developer control to the association. So what we tried to do was draft into the contract with the contractor uh, protections in that in that that those circumstances, right? You know, you want to try to address those issues before you do a turnover so that when you turn over, you're not complaining about a structural issue, you're complaining about whether or not a light switch was in the right location, which is an easy fix, right? That, that's, those are the distinctions you try to make. Um, on top of that, you try to have a good contractor and a, and a reputable contractor that's gonna stand by their product and make sure that warranties are there and indemnification provisions are in the contract to protect you uh, if you're a developer and that aspect as well. So I don't need to tell you this, but but um, you know, there's plenty of times where there's disputes that happen between the developer and the contractor while a project is happening that get resolved and fixed before turnover happens. So the goal is to try to limit the amount of disputes that are on the horizon with an association, um, as opposed to you know, try to handle it within the, the four corners of the contract uh, uh, with your with your builder. Uh, that's the best way that I could counsel developers and and ultimately. 
Um, the more you resolve it and the better product you deliver to your association eventually, the, the less likely that you're going to have any issues. Before we get to our final questions, I have one that I just thought of that I've never asked this question before. I'm curious as to what your answer is going to be. AI is talked about a lot in the world for lots of different reasons, good and bad. Alex, can you talk about how you guys have used AI to your benefit at Haber Law or yourself and also mention why AI won't replace what you do? It's a really good question. I mean, it's really an existential question. Attorneys are, are uh, attorneys, and 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 a lot of professionals are considering the implications of AI across their practice as well as their their profession, right? So I don't think that, although I think AI is valuable in in for example, you know, I'm sure Rory can tell you from his practice, getting a demand letter out or or doing you know basic research, it it gives you a kind of a a starting point on on what to do. But ultimately, you need an attorney to come in and kind of refine it. Or, or apply it to a specific set of facts to be able to do whatever it is you need to do on a particular project. Um, in the construction space, I, I admittedly have not, uh, I've been seeing and reading articles about uh, how AI is being um, used by builders and developers to um, make building more efficient and, and make it more cost-effective. Um, but, but at the end of the day, when it comes to drafting of a contract and, and negotiating a provision or a business provision or counseling a client, AI simply can't do that. You know, you, you go in front of a condo association and you can't really input a, a prompt into chat GPT and have them explain to you why a particular provision matters in the context of the South Florida market with precedent and the relationship with the contractor and the reputation in the industry that just doesn't do that. It can compile some information and give you sort of a summary in some circumstances, but it doesn't it doesn't explain things the way that it, that human touch does, unfortunately. Uh, fortunately and unfortunately, frankly, because I do think it's valuable. It, it does get us uh, started on a particular issue. Um, it gets to, it has a starting point, but it doesn't doesn't do all the work. And ultimately, uh, attorneys or or people or humans in general have to kind of come in and and massage the the product mm -hmm. from AI to make it for, you know, helpful to other people. Yeah. You know, I, I, I use AI for a couple of things, mostly copywriting and ideas, you know, for the marketing right. that we do for our businesses. And, and I couldn't agree more. I mean, sometimes you'll ask it to write something because it helps with the blank page syndrome. You know, where yeah. do I start? And yeah. it'll, it'll give you something to start with. And then you have to massage it into your voice to make it sound human because sometimes the language just sounds so over the top, like no one speaks this way, right? But we did, I did use AI this past weekend where I was looking for some um, thought prompters for some short videos I recorded for um, Instagram Reels for Pride Away Stays, um, you know, one of our businesses. And, you know, you, you put in some prompts and it spits back, I asked for 40 and it gave me a list of 40 things to talk about. And I'd say that 25 of them were good ideas, right? 15 were like, I'm not going to talk about this, but, but you needed a human to look at that and say, okay, I want to record videos about these things. And then you, you kind of need the human still to record the video because you've mentioned, you know, a lot of legal or is uh, relationship based, right? How you get new clients, how, you know, why people hire you because of the network that you have, the Rolodex you have, um, you know, why we think people are going to hire us uh, in, in Provincetown for Pride Away Stays is because of us as humans and who we know and the work that we can do and the credibility that, you know, when, when you're speaking on a podcast like this or when you're speaking to a group at a local uh, networking event or on a webinar, people see you and they see you using those words and 
Right. I, I think that that goes really far when they decide to hire you because, you know, those things can't get replaced unless we're all just droids. And yeah, I don't think they're going to, I don't think that these bar associations are going to introduce droids into, you know, the local bars. Yeah. Jason, you um, make a good point. I mean, obviously AI, AI helps with what we've all dealt with in the past, which is that writer's block where you're just, I don't know how to get started on this blank piece of pay, a blank, blank piece of paper. You know, how do I get started on this particular issue or idea? I have an idea, but I don't know how to put pen to paper. And that's that's where I think AI is tremendously valuable. Um, you know, items that I just don't know how to get started. How do I start this paragraph or how do I start this motion or how do I, you know, how do I frame this issue? It's very valuable. Um, but but one of the things that I do on a, as part of my practice is I, I negotiate because of my unique position representing developers and, and associations both. Um, I, I negotiate what would I call good neighbor agreements or construction impact agreements when there is a development happening right next door, right? Or or a association that exists next to your development. I negotiate those and I draft those pretty, you know, it's happened quite a bit over the last year or two. Um, but but th those kinds of things, AI just simply can't help with, right? Because AI can't address what a unique association has, what their worries are, what their issues are, what they're concerned about with regards to the development next door. And they certainly can't, explain to a developer, you know, hey, look, the association wants you to move your crane 10 feet to the right or deal with this issue. It can't do that without picking up the phone and talking to the person on the other side and, and explaining that uh, one way or the other. That, that human touch is not going to go away ever. Yeah. Why don't we get to our final questions that we ask of all of our guests here uh, just to wrap the interview up and um, get to know you a little bit better, Alex. Raise up a question. First one that we have for you is if you can get on stage for half an hour, and talk about any subject in the world with zero preparation, what would that be? Wow. Uh, besides this podcast, you mean? Mm -hmm. <laughs> okay. I would probably say the trials and tribulations of learning how to raise two girls. I'm a young father. I have, I have a three-year-old and an 18-month-old, and I, I've done a lot of work in talking to other young fathers, and, uh, and, and that, that I, I certainly can talk about <laughs> my trials and tribulations of that. Um, but I, I think any any young any parent can right any parent can talk about that issue. Uh, so th that would be probably where I started. But if, if when it comes to a, a specific topic, um, I would say either cooking or or, uh, or or triathlon training. You know, don't don't uh, don't let this fool you. I, I back in the day I used to be I used to train and 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 do triathlons on a regular basis. I haven't done one in many years, but I, I did it for about ten years of my life. I could probably talk about that and all the the intricacies of of the training aspect and and gear and things like that. I I, I get very obsessive about it. Mm -hmm. My my hunch is raising two young daughters probably factors into why you're not doing triathlons at this very yeah. moment. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's that and and learning how to practice law at the beginning was was one of the you know late nights at the office made it very difficult to get up and and get on the bike at five or five o'clock in the morning or six o'clock in the morning. But yeah, that those are all aspects that that have changed my life, so to speak. Rory, we all need to figure out how there can be more than 24 hours in each day, you know, having these children and all these, you know, being attorneys, children and trying to stay healthy. Yeah. Sometimes at the same time. Yeah. 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 I, I've heard that you have a professional life, you have a personal life and you have uh, obligations for your for a social life and you have to pick two of them. You can't mm -hmm. do all three. And that's, that's, uh, I found that to be uh, very, very true. Yeah. Second question. Uh, tell us something that happened early in your life or career that impacts the way that you're working today. Hmm. That's a good question. I would say my mom's in the real estate space. Uh, she's a, a mortgage, she's not a mortgage broker, a real estate broker for a large real estate company. 
uh, down here and managing several offices. So I, I think that attend like I, I, because I'm an only child, I used to go with her to a lot of appointments, right? I, I used to go with her, with her to showings and and sales and and signing contracts and things like that. So being able to to see how that transaction happens on a regular basis and how um, I, I can see from soup to nuts, like where the property gets its marketed and how it gets sold and then how it gets moved from one one uh, buyer to a seller or one seller to a buyer. Um, that that certainly colors my practice now. She, she would tell you that I've, I've taken the information that she's taught me and, and kind of made it more sophisticated and taken it to another level. That I think that entire, ch my, my childhood was spent, you know, Saturdays and Sundays, uh, a lot of times doing open houses with her, you know, putting up signs, things like that. So, you know, that's the the, the unique the unique circumstances when you're an only child of a, of a realtor here in South Florida. But that's that's what what I think uh, you know colored or, or um, mm -hmm. made my career today. See that work ethic a little bit, you know. See yeah. what mom does. Yeah, yeah. I mean, look, my I'm a child of immigrants, right? My my mom is a first gen. I'm a first generation American. I was born here, but my mom is an immigrant, and my my parent grandparents are immigrants. So that work ethic and being able to um, make ends meet and, and do the work that you need to do to be able to put food on the table for your family. That, that was, that was, um, that was very, very telling for me. Yeah. Only children unite. I'm an only child too. Rory's the only <laughs> one on here that, uh, hmm. you know, lays to claim to siblings. Yeah. yeah. I, I mean, yeah. Now, now I'm raising siblings, so I get it. I mean, I, it's a unique thing, right? I see that I see my daughters play with each other and I'm like, Oh, okay. Well, that's, <laughs> That's a, that's a, an interesting dynamic. I always have to ask my wife for advice on that because she has a sis, an older sister. So I'm always making sure that I'm playing the right, I'm playing the right, right to tone here and setting the right tone in my household. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I get it too. I mean, like I actually can occupy my time really well by myself. I think partly because of, you know, being raised as an only child yeah. and, you know, mm -hmm. the level of independence that I have. Uh, so we'll see how that happens with our daughter, Cecily, because, you know, we only have one and, you know, we find that we occupy her time a lot. We're, we're that play date that, you know, your other yeah. daughter can supply. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Final question that we have, tell us something you're listening to or watching or reading these days. Um, well, reading, I'm reading, uh, the, the tools. Um, I, I, I watched, um, I watched a, a documentary on Netflix called Stutz and uh, Phil Stutz is a, a psychologist in, in the Northeast and uh, his book, uh, The Tools, I'm reading that. I found it to be very enlightening. Um, I, I like to read a lot of different psychology and, and philosophy books in particular. I, I'm, I have a degree in psychology. That's what I got my education in before I went to law school. So I, I, I'm always fascinated by that kind of stuff. Uh, I'm reading Rick Rubin's, um, I forgot the title, but it's The Art of Creativity or The Creative Thinking. I'm reading that as well. As far the as listening, the music producer, Rick Rubin. Yeah, the music producer. Okay. Yeah, I'm, I started reading that actually last weekend, and and it's been it's been really interesting uh, read because the mind of a creative thinker is completely different than a, the mind of a lawyer and an analytical thinker. So I, I like to kind of you know explore that aspect of it. Um, as far as listening, I, I try to listen to uh, music most of the time, um, mostly uh, different you know all genres, but. But um, yeah, music on Spotify and 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 um, other listening uh, aspects of it, and, and a few different podcasts that that deal with uh, mostly sports and and entertainment and pop culture and things like that. But those, those are that's what I'm listening to. I I, I wouldn't want to give necessarily a plug uh, because there's a lot of different things I listen to, and I can talk talk for a while about it. But uh, but yeah, I try to try to uh, fill my time when I when I have free time with um, with listening to a lot of different things and learning as much as I can. Well, Alex, you've proven that attorneys are well-rounded, right? They're not just, you know. <laughs> I try to be. 
Yeah, <laughs> not, just, not just stuffy folks who are just looking at documents all day long and drafting things and going to court. Yeah, I mean, when, when you're looking at documents all day, like you need to fill your time with something else, right? Like oh, I, 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 if I'm if I'm out for a run, I, I, I try to listen to some podcasts that are just entertaining as opposed to like learning in particular. Mm -hmm. uh, but uh, but yeah, I, I'll listen to music on podcasts a lot and, and sorry, music on runs a lot. Um, and when I'm, you know, at home with my kids, I try to try to put music on in the background because I was raised in a household full of music. So I, I like mm -hmm. to make sure that they're listening and well-rounded in their, in their musical taste as well. Yeah. Well, that's awesome. Well, Bluey is probably somewhere on your list as well, but if you haven't been, made it to Bluey yet, you know, it's coming. Bluey, Bluey, Coco Melon, Blippy, uh, all, all of those are, are, are on the, uh, in the house pretty regularly, but I try to mix in uh, you know, some Jay-Z and, and some, some yeah. Nas and, and, and some, you know, Miles Davis as well. So I try to mix it all in. So it's, it's uh, all across the spectrum. Somehow our daughter's favorite song right now is we will rock you, you know, so she's, okay. you know, she, she knows some classic rock. Mm -hmm. Alex, thank you for the conversation. Uh, this has been fantastic. We're going to put um, all your links and everything in the show notes. So people could reach out to you at Haber law, uh, put your LinkedIn on there and everything so they can get a hold of you if they want more information. Rory, where should people get a hold of you if they want more info? If you just go to RoryGill.com, you'll see the different ways to get in touch with me and the different ways I can help you out. All right. And if you want to get a hold of me or want to be on the podcast, you can go to jasonmuth.com and you can find my email and reach out and let us know what you have to say. And uh, we'll see if we can get you scheduled on the podcast. Uh, Alex, thank you so much. Uh, it's been a, a pleasure getting to know you a little bit better and to learn more about some construction law and some of the things that you guys go through in dealing with condo boards and developers and all the, the crazy corners of the real estate world. I'm happy to, happy to help you guys. Uh, and pleasure meeting you, Rory. Pleasure meeting you, Jason. Looking forward to continuing our relationship. Absolutely. Thank you for listening. If you've enjoyed this episode, we love five-star reviews and we read all of your comments. So comment away on behalf of Rory and Alex. Thank you so much. I'm Jason and we'll see you next time.